Picture this, if you will. You're an emergency physician at the local trauma center when you're paged overhead to the trauma bay. Upon arrival, you see a 62-year-old construction worker with major trauma to the lower leg. Paramedics report that the structure collapsed onto his leg, trapping him for two hours until the fire department could help extricate him. Vitals reveal that the patient is tachycardic but normotensive, and upon seeing the severely mangled lower extremity, the trauma surgeon determines that amputation will be required and calls for the operating room to be prepared immediately. Wait a minute, you call after him, and point to the EKG you obtained. Peaked T-waves. We're going to need to stabilize him before he's safe for surgery. What other problem does the patient's EKG alert you to? And how will you proceed with workup and management? And welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing high-yield medical topics from our bricks to your ears. Now, I know this is classified as a nephrology topic using the organ system approach. It is an electrolyte, after all. But as you'll see, it's also central to cardiology, and in fact, my own specialty of emergency medicine. So, after listening to this brick, you'll be able to 1. Define hyperkalemia and discuss its epidemiology. 2. Describe the clinical presentation of hyperkalemia. 3. Describe the mechanisms and outline the common causes of hyperkalemia. 4. Describe the diagnosis of hyperkalemia, both using laboratory testing and electrocardiography. And 5. Outline the management of hyperkalemia and provide the rationale for each medication used. Part 1. What is hyperkalemia? Potassium is found in every cell of the human body, and it's essential to the function of all tissues. Because of the action of the sodium-potassium antiporter, the vast majority of the body's potassium is found inside of the cells. To give you an idea, normal serum levels of potassium range from 3.5 to 5 milliEQs per liter, compared to concentrations of about 150 milliEQs per liter inside the cell. Now, it's no surprise that the body works hard to maintain the homeostasis of all electrolytes within a narrow range. I mean, that's just how we humans roll. But the body's particularly intolerant of deviations in serum potassium. Potassium levels above 5.5 milliEQs per liter can be dangerous, and levels above 6.5 put patients at progressive risk of lethal cardiac arrhythmias that cause abrupt cardiac arrest with little or no warning. In fact, the lethality of hyperkalemia is put to particularly macabre use in the judicial system, where it serves as the final drug administered in the lethal injection that's used to permanently stop the heart. So, while homeostasis of all electrolytes is important, potassium homeostasis is especially important to get right. Unfortunately, as we'll discuss, there's plenty of ways the human body can mess this up, most commonly in the advanced stages of chronic kidney disease. Maintaining steady potassium concentrations requires constant excretion by the kidneys, and failure to do so causes the serum potassium levels to rise. And because hyperkalemia kills quickly, it falls to all of us clinicians to be able to rapidly recognize and treat it. So to review, what is the most important consequence of hyperkalemia? The most important clinical consequence of hyperkalemia is lethal cardiac arrhythmias and frequently cardiac arrest. Part 2. How do patients with hyperkalemia present? One of the most dangerous things about hyperkalemia is the fact that the symptoms that precede cardiac arrest are usually mild to non-existent, and these may include muscle weakness, heart palpitations, cramping, twitching, all of which result from changes in the membrane potentials of muscles and nerves. 
Patients may also experience symptoms related to the cause of their hyperkalemia. For example, patients with acute kidney injury may have decreased urine output, and patients with end-stage renal disease who've missed dialysis may also have edema and dyspnea secondary to fluid overload or confusion from uremia. If you're lucky, you'll discover that a patient has hyperkalemia upon obtaining a metabolic panel for other reasons. But all too often, patients with hyperkalemia simply present to the ER without a pulse. And unfortunately, when you're doing CPR, there's often not a lot of time to send blood for a metabolic panel and wait for it to come back. We'll go over the EKG diagnosis of hyperkalemia later in this episode, but remember that hyperkalemia is one of the H's and T's of the ACLS algorithm for cardiac arrest. Always keep this in mind when resuscitating a patient, and keep your eyes open for the telltale fistula or dialysis catheter that tells you that your patient has end-stage renal disease. Part 3 what is the pathophysiology of hyperkalemia? Like I mentioned, potassium resides mainly in the intracellular fluid because of the sodium-potassium pump. But the balance of potassium intake and excretion is also important to homeostasis. Ingested potassium is absorbed in the small intestine, and when you think of potassium-rich foods, everyone thinks of bananas. But potatoes, sweet potatoes, avocados, spinach, broccoli, and melons are also rich in potassium. Perhaps more importantly, though, the regulation of total body potassium occurs primarily in the kidneys. Potassium is filtered like other electrolytes in concentrations roughly the same as in the serum. But in the proximal tubule, more water is reabsorbed than potassium, which serves to progressively decrease the concentration of potassium in the tubular capillaries. Now, the loop of Henle also participates in potassium reabsorption, and some fine-tuning occurs in the distal tubule, where aldosterone upregulates potassium secretion. But the most important thing to remember is that the default setting of the kidneys is to decrease the serum potassium, thereby preventing it from building up in the body. If your kidneys are working, it's virtually impossible to ingest enough dietary potassium to cause hyperkalemia. So, hyperkalemia generally occurs by two different mechanisms either decreased renal excretion or release of the huge reserves of intracellular potassium into the serum. We already touched upon the most common cause of hyperkalemia, renal failure. This most commonly occurs when a patient's GFR falls below 10% of the normal rate and can be seen in both acute and chronic kidney disease. Acute kidney injury has many different causes, from sepsis to urinary obstruction, Patients with chronic kidney disease may slowly reach a point where their serum potassium can no longer be excreted at the rate required to maintain homeostasis. And in patients on dialysis, serum potassium is constantly tenuous. These patients are frequently pushing the limits of safe potassium between dialysis sessions, and ingesting more potassium-rich foods or supplements than usual can actually put them into the zone of hyperkalemic cardiotoxicity. And missing even one dialysis session can be fatal. In both acute kidney injury and end-stage renal disease, minimally symptomatic hyperkalemia can be associated with other symptoms of renal failure, including edema and dyspnea from fluid overload, confusion from uremia, or Kussmaul breathing and GI symptoms from metabolic acidosis. The other main etiology of renally-induced hyperkalemia is dysregulation of aldosterone at the distal tubule. Now, just to review, aldosterone is a mineralocorticoid hormone that stimulates renal potassium secretion by the principal cells in the collecting duct. So, hypoaldosteronism will reduce renal potassium secretion and cause hyperkalemia. 
Now, hypoaldosteronism can be primary, as in adrenal insufficiency or congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or secondary to other diseases that downregulate the entire renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Hyporenanemic hypoaldosteronism is often accompanied by type 4 renal tubular acidosis, and the most common predisposing factors for this condition are diabetic nephropathy and chronic interstitial nephritis. Most commonly, though, hyperkalemia secondary to hypoaldosteronism occurs as a result of medication side effects, and the main culprits from most to least likely are the potassium-sparing diuretics, ACE inhibitors and ARBs, and the NSAIDs. Diuretics like spironolactone, aplerinone, amiloride, and triamterine are used in the treatment of congestive heart failure and liver disease and are commonly referred to as the potassium-sparing diuretics. They promote renal water loss, but unlike the lupin thiazide diuretics, they impair the kidney's ability to secrete potassium, since they antagonize either the aldosterone receptors or the potassium transporters that aldosterone upregulates. To a lesser extent, the ubiquitous ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, and NSAIDs can all suppress aldosterone synthesis by downregulating the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, or RAS, at its more proximal steps. Now, normally, renin promotes the synthesis of angiotensin II, which stimulates aldosterone synthesis in turn in the adrenal glands. Angiotensin receptor blockers prevent angiotensin II from stimulating aldosterone synthesis, ACE inhibitors prevent the synthesis of angiotensin II, and NSAIDs decrease renin production in the kidneys in a way that's slightly less intuitive than the other two. They do this by inhibiting the prostaglandins that are essential for renal cell-to-cell signaling in the macula densa. So all three can lead to hyperkalemia by decreasing aldosterone synthesis. But it's worth noting that the RAS isn't the only stimulus for the synthesis of aldosterone. Hyperkalemia itself can be a potent stimulus. So these drugs aren't as likely to cause hyperkalemia as the potassium-sparing diuretics themselves. Alright, we've covered a lot, and that's only the renal etiologies of hyperkalemia. So let's review quickly. Why does hypoaldosteronism cause hyperkalemia? Aldosterone works in the principal cells to stimulate potassium secretion. In hypoaldosteronism, potassium secretion will be impaired, so potassium builds up in the blood. Now, the next major category in the wide world of things that cause hyperkalemia involves intracellular potassium finding its way into the serum. Remember, the cells in our body have over 30 times the potassium concentration as the serum does, and there's about twice the intracellular fluid as there is low potassium serum and interstitial fluid. And when you remember that even doubling the serum potassium concentration can be a death sentence, it starts to feel like we're all kind of ticking time bombs. Personally, it makes me grateful that my cells work so hard with their little sodium-potassium antiporters. The first way that intracellular potassium can get released into the serum is simply if a bunch of cells all break down at the same time, faster than the kidneys can excrete the excess potassium. And there's two types of cell death that are particularly responsible for this, rhabdomyolysis and tumor lysis. Rhabdomyolysis refers to the breakdown of muscle cells, which are typically very large in terms of cell volume and therefore contain a lot of potassium. And this most often occurs in crush injuries to the extremities or in severe illnesses like sepsis, but it may also occur with intense exercise like marathon running or viral myositis or hyperthermia or even stimulant drug overdose. The hyperkalemia from muscle cell breakdown can be exacerbated by the fact that the myoglobin release from the muscle cells can also cause kidney failure. So basically, you're decreasing potassium excretion even as dangerous quantities of potassium are released into the serum. 
Tumor lysis syndrome is a consequence of chemotherapy in the treatment of cancers with large tumor burdens, generally spread throughout the body, like leukemias or lymphomas. In these patients, chemotherapy can cause large numbers of cancerous cells to break down at the same time, releasing their intracellular contents, which includes potassium. The second way that intracellular potassium can find its way inconveniently into the serum is through ion shifting, and the main disease process that causes this is diabetes mellitus. In patients with poorly controlled diabetes, marked hyperglycemia leads to dehydration through osmotic diuresis, even as it increases the serum osmolarity. To compensate, water osmoses out of the cells, but this increases the intracellular potassium concentrations, and the concentration gradient drives potassium from the inside of cells to the outside via potassium leak channels. This process, called osmotic drag, can lead to severe hyperkalemia, even as the total body potassium decreases through urinary losses. The problem is exacerbated by decreased activity of the sodium-potassium pump, because you see, the very sodium-potassium pump that keeps potassium safely inside our cells is maintained by none other than our friend insulin. So, relative insulin insufficiency, especially in DKA, will allow more potassium to remain in the extracellular fluid and serum. Additionally, the metabolic acidosis caused by DKA may worsen hyperkalemia, since the acidemia causes hydrogen ion movement into the cells in exchange for potassium movement out of the cells. It's the perfect storm, even before you consider the fact that patients with diabetes are also likely to have chronic kidney disease, and the dehydration caused by hyperglycemia often exacerbates it. So to review, why do patients with diabetic ketoacidosis develop hyperkalemia? The three main reasons that patients with DKA develop hyperkalemia are 1. Hyperglycemia leads to potassium loss from the cells through osmotic drag. 2. Acidosis causes hydrogen ions to move into the cells and potassium ions to move out of them. And 3. Insulin deficiency decreases the activity of the sodium-potassium ATPase channel. Finally, let's talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of how hyperkalemia affects the heart. When hyperkalemia is left untreated, the most serious complications are arrhythmias. We'll talk a little bit more in the next section about the diagnosis of hyperkalemia on EKG, but while hyperkalemia is known to cause some of the most lethal arrhythmias like ventricular fibrillation, ventricular tachycardia, and asystole, arguably its signature cardiac effect is to induce wide complex bradycardia. And the reason for this comes down to the fact that the resting potential of cardiac myocytes, like all cells, is primarily determined by potassium concentrations. There are more potassium leak channels in the cell membrane than any other kind of leak channel, and the more permeable a membrane is to an electrolyte, the more influence that electrolyte has over its resting potential. <laughs> Check it out, I just dropped some Nernst equation knowledge on y'all. Anyway, if you increase the extracellular potassium, you're effectively decreasing the massive gradient between intracellular and extracellular potassium. And since potassium has the greatest influence over the resting potential, decreasing that gradient brings the resting potential of the cardiac myocytes closer to zero, what's sometimes referred to as partial depolarization. Now, recall that both the sodium and calcium channels rely on the repolarization of the cell to reset themselves for another depolarization. When the resting potential becomes artificially high during hyperkalemia, more and more of those channels get confused and become functionally inactive, 
And that leads to a sluggish depolarization phase that slows the conduction from cell to cell, leading to a prolonged QRS complex and bradycardia from the decreased automaticity of the pacemaker cells. Part 4. How do we diagnose hyperkalemia? Because most patients with hyperkalemia have no specific physical signs or symptoms, hyperkalemia is generally diagnosed in one of three ways, and I'd classify these as good, bad, and worse. The good scenario is when you pick up the elevated potassium levels by accident on a routine metabolic panel, in which case you need to immediately order an EKG, for reasons I'll explain in a moment. But you should also keep in mind that in patients who have absolutely no reason to have hyperkalemia, that this is a very common laboratory error, known by some as pseudo-hyperkalemia. See, hemolysis occurs frequently during lab draws, especially through small-gauge needles and when excessive pressure is used to draw the blood, or if a patient is dehydrated and the veins collapse. And remember, a lot of potassium can be found in the ruptured cells. So, if the potassium level doesn't make sense in the clinical context, repeat the lab draw to make sure you're dealing with true hyperkalemia instead of pseudo-hyperkalemia. But assuming the hyperkalemia is real, other laboratory tests can help identify the etiology. The basic metabolic panel that usually diagnoses hyperkalemia will also give you the BUN and creatinine, identifying kidney failure that may be causing the potassium abnormality, as well as the glucose and bicarbonate that can help identify hyperglycemic emergencies. A creatine phosphokinase level can help identify rhabdomyolysis, and uric acid levels will confirm tumor lysis syndrome. A urinalysis should be done in all hyperkalemic patients to work up potential etiologies of kidney failure or other problems of renal excretion. The bad scenario occurs when you have a sick patient who is symptomatic from another condition that you know can cause hyperkalemia, and the reason I call this a bad scenario is because these patients can be pretty sick. Diabetic ketoacidosis and hyperosmol or hyperglycemic syndrome are life-threatening medical emergencies and often presented to the emergency department critically ill. Patients with kidney failure often have other dangerous complications of kidney failure, like hypertensive emergencies, renal failure from pulmonary edema, etc. And a crush injury severe enough to cause hyperkalemia is often associated with grievous trauma that will require surgical intervention. In these patients, hyperkalemia may complicate the clinical course of an already serious illness. Now, the worst scenario occurs when you discover hyperkalemia not based on the metabolic panel or the clinical context, but because they're already experiencing cardiac toxicity from the potassium levels. And the reason this is worse is because if they already have cardiac effects, you may have only minutes to treat the patient before they go into cardiac arrest. So you need to administer treatment before your metabolic panel comes back and confirms your suspicions of hyperkalemia. Now, generally speaking, EKG abnormalities may occur when the serum potassium exceeds 5.5 milliEQs per liter. The quote-unquote classic sign of early hyperkalemia on an EKG is the peaked T wave, tall, thin waves because of abnormal cardiac action potentials. There may also be a shortened QT interval, less than two big boxes, which is less than 0.4 seconds. And the reason is that even though depolarization is slower than normal, repolarization, and in fact the entire action potential, is generally shorter. More severe cardiotoxicity secondary to hyperkalemia generally occurs at a serum potassium greater than 6.5, and at this point, the QRS complex will start to widen. Quick refresher. What counts as a wide QRS complex? Greater than three small boxes, or longer than 120 milliseconds. Bradycardia often follows this, which is generally an ominous sign. 
Additional signs include progressive flattening of the P waves and a shortening of the ST segment until the wide QRS complex begins to blend into the peaked T wave in what's often referred to as a sinusoidal pattern. If you see this pattern, you likely only have moments to act before the patient goes into cardiac arrest, if they aren't already pulseless. Which brings me to my final point. Your patient's presenting sign of hyperkalemia may be that they're brought in without a pulse. Scary, huh? Especially because you don't have time to get labs. In this case, you have to look for clues. Does the patient's pulseless electrical activity have a sinusoidal waveform or a wide complex bradycardia? Then assume it's hyperkalemia. Does your patient have an AV fistula or a dialysis catheter? Hyperkalemia should be at the front of your mind for possible causes of cardiac arrest. Does your patient have a ventricular arrhythmia? Well, shock them, then get an EKG and check carefully for signs of hyperkalemia. Lastly, it's important to note that the EKG findings don't always follow a consistent pattern, and that the cardiac toxicity is not consistently associated with the exact potassium concentration. Peaked T waves might mean your patient has hours before cardiac arrest occurs, or it could mean they have only minutes. As an emergency physician, my ability to evaluate an EKG for signs of hyperkalemia is just as important as my ability to detect cardiac ischemia or myocardial infarction. And it is strongly guided by my clinical suspicion. If a patient has diabetes mellitus or is on dialysis, you can bet I'll be scrutinizing that EKG for any excuse to administer life-saving medications. So to review, what are three classic EKG findings that suggest cardiotoxicity secondary to hyperkalemia? Three classic findings are peaked T waves, a wide QRS complex, and a shortened QT interval. A sinusoidal waveform may be seen if the patient is close to cardiac arrest. Part 5. How do we manage hyperkalemia? In a staple hyperkalemic patient, and in fact any hyperkalemic patient, stop all reversible causes of hyperkalemia. Now this mostly includes medications. Remind me again. Which medications cause hyperkalemia? Potassium-sparing diuretics, ACE inhibitors, and ARBs, and NSAIDs. Especially in patients with renal failure, placing the patient on a low-potassium diet will help. Finally, IV fluids will help dilute the potassium in the serum and increase urinary excretion, assuming they can tolerate IV fluids. In patients with mild hyperkalemia, between 5 and 5.5 milliEQs per liter, if they have a normal EKG, this might be sufficient. But of course, treatment and prognosis will depend on the underlying etiology. If the serum potassium is greater than 5.5, patients will usually need some sort of an intervention to reduce their total body potassium. Patients on dialysis, obviously, will need dialysis to directly remove potassium from their blood. For patients not on dialysis, potassium excretion can be promoted via the GI or the urinary routes. Urinary excretion, in patients who can actually urinate, is usually the fastest and most effective way to eliminate total body potassium. IV fluids like normal saline will not only help dilute the concentration of potassium, by increasing the volume of urine output, they can facilitate potassium excretion. Side note, in patients with DKA who actually have low total body potassium, this is a side effect that can be unintentionally dangerous. The loop diuretic furosemide is also exceptionally effective, it not only increases the urine volume, but also increases urinary excretion of potassium specifically. 
Again, though, the patient actually needs to be able to urinate for this to work. And keep in mind, the most common cause of hyperkalemia in the United States is end-stage renal disease. So, several drugs are available to increase excretion of potassium through the feces as well. This category of drugs is referred to as the potassium binding resins, including sodium polystyrene sulfonate, known by the brand name Kxalate, as well as other potassium binding agents like pteromer and sodium zirconium cyclosilicate that are not widely available in the United States. These resins bind to potassium in the gastrointestinal tract, particularly in the large intestine, and can be administered either orally or by the somewhat faster but less effective enema route. They can decrease the serum potassium by 0.5 to 1.0 milliEQs per liter, and multiple doses are typically necessary. But they're not without risk. Common side effects include diarrhea and abdominal cramping, and KXLate specifically is associated with bowel ischemia and even perforation. So these are only used when absolutely necessary, and keeping the potential complications in mind. Patients with serum potassium greater than 6.5 milliEQs per liter or symptoms of muscle weakness or the characteristic EKG changes, are said to have severe hyperkalemia. These patients, along with patients whose clinical course is anticipated to cause rapid elevation in serum potassium, require emergent treatment to rapidly lower the serum potassium. Now, these treatments don't eliminate total body potassium, but rather they stabilize the situation. The first priority is stabilization of the cardiac cell membrane, and this is indicated whenever the EKG shows abnormalities typical of hyperkalemia. And keep in mind, since the EKG changes don't always progress predictably, this is often a risk-benefit-likelihood calculation. In a patient with a history of a coronary bypass graft, a widened QRS complex alone is more likely to represent a post-surgical bundle branch block rather than hyperkalemia. But a patient who arrives in ventricular fibrillation and has an AV fistula for dialysis on exam should be treated as though the arrhythmia could be caused by hyperkalemia, even though there are other more common causes of V-fib. The medication used to stabilize the cardiac membrane is calcium, available in the more potent calcium chloride and the less potent calcium gluconate, which is less irritating to the veins. And while calcium doesn't affect the serum potassium concentration, it helps return the resting potential of the cardiac myocytes to their normal level. Now, this often occurs fairly quickly, within about a minute of calcium administration, and one way to test your hypothesis of presumptive hyperkalemia before the labs come back is to simply wait after the calcium is administered and see if the EKG normalizes. If your T waves become less pointy, if your QRS complex becomes narrower, or if the heart rate becomes faster. Now, the next category of medications are the potassium shifters. These medications take advantage of the fact that the cells themselves have an enormous capacity for potassium. They also promote movement of potassium out of the serum into the cells of the body. Unfortunately, this effect is only temporary, but it's often an essential way to stabilize a patient. The most effective potassium shifter is none other than insulin, which makes sense since insulin deficiency in DKA is a major part of the reason they become hyperkalemic. Insulin increases the activity of the sodium-potassium antiporter, promoting active transport of potassium into the cells. Remember, though, that insulin also causes a drop in blood sugar. Now, if your patient is DKA or HHS, that may be part of why you're administering insulin in the first place. But you need to be careful to check the blood sugar frequently after administering insulin. And in most normoglycemic patients, insulin should be administered along with intravenous dextrose. Inhaled beta agonists, most characteristically albuterol, 
also stimulate the sodium-potassium antiporter, but are less effective than insulin. Finally, intravenous sodium bicarbonate can have limited efficacy in patients with acidemia. Administration of bicarbonate causes hydrogen ions to leave the cell to neutralize the bicarbonate, and hydrogen efflux is coupled to potassium influx by a hydrogen-potassium antiporter. Note that this is not typically effective in patients who aren't acidemic, but honestly, hyperkalemia is potentially lethal enough to where, in most cases, you just throw every medication you can at the problem rather than just trying one or the other. Alright, quick review gang. What three medications are used to shift potassium out of the serum and into the cells? And the answer is insulin, albuterol, and sodium bicarbonate. Note that in most cases, you're going to need to think ahead as to how you're going to reduce the total body potassium, even as you're stabilizing the patient using calcium and the potassium shifters. For the most common causes of hyperkalemia, this is pretty straightforward. Dialysis patients ultimately need dialysis to remove the potassium from their body, because furosemide usually won't be as effective, and they won't be able to tolerate aggressive IV fluid resuscitation. You can't use a potassium binding resin if they can't get emergent dialysis quickly enough, but remember, this has potential risks associated with it. Patients with DKA or HHS, counterintuitively, will always have low total body potassium, even if they present with hyperkalemia. In the process of resuscitating them for their hyperglycemic emergency, remember, you're going to be giving them a lot of insulin and IV fluids, and in fact, their serum potassium concentration should decrease quite rapidly. But you need to keep checking it, because at a certain point, you're probably going to need to start replacing their potassium. For most other common causes of hyperkalemia, a combination of IV fluids and furosemide should work just fine. And that's a wrap. Let's see what you learned about the effects and management of hyperkalemia. First, can you identify the two most common populations in which hyperkalemia occurs? Hyperkalemia, or elevated serum potassium, generally occurs in patients with severely decreased renal function, like dialysis patients, and in patients with hyperglycemic emergencies, like diabetic ketoacidosis or hyperosmal or hyperglycemic syndrome. The latter will counterintuitively have low total body potassium, despite sometimes having critically elevated serum potassium concentrations. Otherwise, hyperkalemia is generally caused by decreased renal excretion from medications or renal tubular dysfunction or massive cell death, like rhabdomyolysis or tumor lysis syndrome. Second, how does hyperkalemia generally present? Hyperkalemia, remember, is particularly dangerous because it only produces mild to non-existent symptoms before leading to potentially lethal cardiac arrhythmias. If present, symptoms may include muscle weakness, palpitations, or muscle cramping or twitching. Often, you can predict that a patient may have hyperkalemia based on other features of the clinical condition, such as fluid overload and kidney failure, the classic syndrome of diabetic ketoacidosis, a major crush injury, or a recent history of chemotherapy. Third, how is hyperkalemia diagnosed? The diagnosis of hyperkalemia is formally made by a measurement of serum potassium greater than 5.0 milliequeues per liter. However, because hyperkalemia can be abruptly lethal, 
It's important to be able to presumptively diagnose cardiotoxicity from hyperkalemia on EKG. The EKG will characteristically show peaked T waves early on, and wide complex bradycardia as the hyperkalemia becomes more severe. Now, the EKG changes aren't reliable, and with the exception of peaked T waves, aren't generally specific to hyperkalemia. So your index of suspicion needs to be guided by the patient's clinical condition and their medical comorbidities. Finally, what are three main modalities of treatment for a patient with severe hyperkalemia? The first-line treatment is membrane stabilization with either calcium chloride or calcium gluconate, which should have a rapid, observable impact on the EKG. Next, potassium shifters like insulin, albuterol, and bicarbonate can be used to temporarily sequester potassium in the cells to keep it out of the serum. Finally, methods to reduce total body potassium include IV fluids, furosemide, potassium binding resins, and dialysis. Now, Armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to that patient from the intro. A 62-year-old male presents to the local trauma center with a severe crush injury requiring amputation, but his EKG reveals peaked T-waves. What problem does the patient's EKG alert you to, and how will you proceed with workup and management? In the context of the patient's crush injury, the peaked T-waves are highly suspicious for hyperkalemia, secondary to rhabdomyolysis. Knowing that hyperkalemia can be quickly lethal, especially in the context of an acutely elevated potassium level, you immediately order calcium gluconate and 2 liters of normal saline. As you watch the monitor, you see the T-waves begin to shrink before your eyes, and you follow the calcium with insulin, dextrose, albuterol, and sodium bicarbonate. Sure enough, the patient's chemistry reveals a potassium of 7.2, and IV furosemide is administered to increase the patient's potassium output. His creatinine is also higher than normal, and a Foley catheter is placed to monitor the urine output. You notice that the urine coming from the bag is scant and dark brown. He's going to need a moment before he's stable for surgery, he recommended the surgeon. I'd put him in the ICU and make sure that his kidneys can offload the potassium first. Otherwise, the meds we use to stabilize him will wear off during the surgery. The surgeon nods, and the patient is taken to the ICU, with the amputation scheduled for later that day. And that's our show! If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full Bricks experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends.